Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15. As I announced last week, we do have uh, new pew Bibles. I guess they're not technically pew Bibles since we don't sit in pews, but we do have Bibles available for you. If you're here this morning, you didn't bring a Bible. If you look at the chair in front of you, at least one of the chairs nearby, there should be a, a white Bible. And uh, if that's the Bible you use, our passage is on page 553 of that Bible. Um, <clears throat> I want to let you know before we get started here that uh, we have a couple of exciting weekends coming up in September. As most of you know, we are in the search for a youth director here at New Life, and we have two candidates coming in uh, the coming weekends. Next weekend, September 10 and 11, we have a guy named Matt Woodson who will be here with us, and then um, we'll take a break in the middle of September, and then the last September... Uh, or the last weekend of September, 24th and 25, Andrew Brown will be here. Some of you know Andrew, a former member of New Life. And so the schedule will be on Saturday. These men will be meeting with our search committee, and maybe some of you don't know about how the search committee was formed. Uh, The search committee consists of uh, our two youth interns, that's Jamie Carter and Brad Huff, as well as two elders. So that would be... um, Felix Aguilar, and Brian Allred, and then we chose a wife of an elder and a wife of a deacon, and so that will be uh, Karen Bow as well as Aaron Moore. So those six people, two elders, two youth interns, and two wives of officers make up the search team. That search team will be meeting with these candidates uh, each Saturday, and uh, the elders and elders' wives are also going to hang out with the candidate uh, on Saturday evening. And then on Sunday, each candidate will be here. Uh, the candidate will teach Sunday school to the junior and senior high youth. We'll have the candidate here on Sunday morning during the uh, worship service and introduce each of these individuals to you briefly. And then after the service, we will have a pizza lunch that will give you all an opportunity to meet these guys. We'll have a little Q&A Uh, as well for them. Um, So Sunday, September 11th and Sunday, September 25th will be the two pizza lunches. We'd really love to get an idea about how many will attend these lunches. So um, we have a sign-up sheet for the September 11th lunch out now at the Welcome Center. So if you can please uh, sign up for that. Um, If you don't sign up, it doesn't mean you can't come. But if you do plan to come, we would sure like uh, to know about that. Pastor Brian did make an announcement about this last week and gave some detail about our current situation. If you weren't here last week, uh, come talk to Brian or me or one of the elders. We can give you a little more detail uh, on where we stand with the search for our youth director. So uh, exciting developments here, and as usual, we would ask for your continued prayers as we search for the right man to fill that job. Okay, well, we're in Romans. Continuing to go through this book one passage at a time. Our passage today is Romans 15, 1 through 7. Um, Several years ago, Mary and I were on vacation one summer. And what we like to do when we're on vacation is take a Sunday and go visit other churches uh, in the area or in our presbytery. On this particular Sunday, we decided we would go to a church uh, in Fishers, Crossroads, 
PCA. And uh, we were getting ready to leave, and the car was in the driveway, and we were coming out into the car, and I put my Bible up on the roof of the car because I remembered that there was something in the garage that I needed to do before we left. So I um, ran into the garage. I think I put something on the shelf or something like that, and then came back out into the car, got in, and drove down I-69 to Fishers. And when we got to Crossroads, as usual, the first thing I do is look in my back seat for my Bible to grab it to go into church. There's no Bible. And I look underneath my seat, and I ask Mary. There's no Bible. And then it occurs to me. I put it on the roof of my car, and I didn't take it off the roof of my car when I got in and drove down to Noblesville. So I'm panicked. Uh, this is a very special Bible to me. Um, this is a Bible I'd had about 15 years at the time. It was a Bible I had pages and pages of notes. It was the Bible I took with me to seminary, and I had uh, a real special attachment to this Bible. So um, I, I was very alarmed, very troubled. So we decided to do everything we could to find the Bible. And of course, we have no idea when it might have fallen off the roof of the car, so we start driving up 69 back home. I'm driving as slowly as I can, and I'm keeping my eyes peeled on the median and the side of the road, and once we got back up to 32, which is where we got on to I-69, I thought, well, you know, maybe that's where I kind of sped up and took a turn. Maybe it fell off there. We pulled the car over, and I got out of my car. I was walking up and down the median of I-69 looking for my Bible. Bible. Couldn't find it. So we come back home, down 32. Again, driving as slowly as we can, eyes peeled, can't find it. We get home, and we decide that we'll eat lunch before we look for my Bible further. So we sit down and eat. This is the summer again, and it's kind of a drought, and there's, been, there's no forecast for rain on this day, but as we're sitting down to eat, suddenly there's this downpour. And for like 10 minutes, it's just pouring rain. Thinking, oh, my poor Bible. <laughs> It's out there on the road somewhere getting soaked. And so I thought, well, maybe I get on my bike and go out and, and ride. I'll be moving a little more slowly, and it'll give me an opportunity to, to find the Bible. So I got on my bike, and I was riding. Uh, we live on the west side of Muncie, and um, got down on River Road, started going um, west on River Road, and got close to Colonial Crest Apartments. And then I noticed this box that was set up on the side of the road. It was a box that might have you know, contained a microwave oven maybe, about that size. And it was propped up on the side of the road. And on top of that box, my Bible. It was like somebody had found that Bible and got that box, put it out there in the road, and set it out for me to see. And found the Bible, <laughs> opened it up. It was a, a little bit wet but actually not that damaged. And I gotta tell you, I had such a relief and such joy to know that God had preserved my Bible. Now I tell you that story just to kind of get you to think a little bit about what it would be like if we didn't have a Bible. Now, of course, losing that Bible, by the way, I brought it with me. This, this is it here <laughs> as proof. My NIV, slightly wet, study Bible. But what would it be like if we didn't have a Bible? Of course, I had other Bibles at home, but just imagine what it would be like 
if we didn't have access to the Bible, we wouldn't have any idea about the meaning of our lives. We would have no idea about any purpose that God might have in the sufferings that we endure. We would have no knowledge of the life of Jesus Christ. We would have no knowledge of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We would have no knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We wouldn't know about any of those things. We would be living in total darkness and hopelessness if it weren't for our Bibles. But just as some kind soul preserved my Bible for me, God in His grace has preserved the Bible for all of us. By His Spirit and in His providential control, He has taken the 40 authors who have written the Bible over the course of a thousand years and writing 66 different books and in His providence has held that all together so that now, today, we can hear the best news that has ever been uttered, men and women in the scriptures. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 15, 1 through 7. Um, it's almost like Paul kind of goes off onto a little bit of a tangent here in verse 4. He just kind of jumps into this um, description about the scriptures. It almost seems like a non sequitur in a sense. It just seems the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and just moved him to write about the scriptures. And that's what this passage is about and what we're going to talk about here this morning, the enduring hope of the Bible. So please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 15, 1 through 7. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, the glory of God. Lord, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Three things that I want to show you from this passage about what Paul says about our Bibles. And the first is this. The Bible is entirely relevant. It's a relevant book. Now, I, I say entirely there because of what Paul says here in verse 4 at the very beginning. He says, for whatever was written in former days, whatever. The NIV says everything that was written in former days. It's a comprehensive statement, the Bible in its entirety. And so that's going to be a recurring word in my three points here. The Bible is entirely, first of all, relevant. So Paul says in verse 4, whatever was written in former days. So Paul is looking back onto writings from the past. In other words, what he has in mind primarily here is the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament, of course, wasn't finished at the time that Paul wrote this. I, I think this passage can apply to the New Testament because we consider the New Testament Scripture. 
But what Paul has specifically in mind here is the Old Testament. And so when he says in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days, what, what he means is that whatever was written a long, long time ago is still written for our instruction. But Paul has in mind ancient scripture. See, it's very easy for us to kind of conflate the whole writing of the Bible as if it was all written at one time, but it wasn't. It was written at different times over the course of a long period of time. So when Paul talks about what was written in the past, he's talking about the Old Testament. So for instance, the last book written in the Testament was the book of Malachi, which was written about five centuries before Jesus and before Paul's day. It was the most recent book to Paul written in the Old Testament. It had been written 500 years before Paul's life. If you look at the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, those books were written about 10 centuries before Paul. About a thousand years. And if you look at the book of Genesis, we believe Genesis was probably written about 15 centuries before Paul. 1,500 years. So even though Paul is referring here in chapter 15, verse 4, to scriptures that were written in the former days as long as 1,500 years before Paul lived, he nonetheless still considers the Bible, entirely relevant. It says, verse 4, again, whatever was written in former days was written our instruction. It was written for us so that we could be instructed, so that we could learn about how to live based on what was written in the past. See, here's a very common accusation that you hear today about the Bible. Oh, how can you believe that ancient document? How can you believe this Bible, this book that was written in this distant culture so many centuries ago, there's such a huge gap between what they knew and what we know now that there's no possible way that we can really understand what it means. You hear that all the time today. And people neglect their Bibles because they think it's so irrelevant. Well, the Old Testament wasn't irrelevant to Paul, and Paul was separated by many centuries from the scriptures that he was referring to. And I think there's no reason why we shouldn't make the same conclusion for ourselves. The passing of many centuries doesn't mean that the Bible is irrelevant. We don't get the impression from Paul here in verse 4 that he considers the Old Testament to be outdated or to be passe or to be unfashionable or to be proven wrong in any way by the progress of time. He considers it entirely <clears throat> relevant. Here's what John MacArthur says about this. Even though the Bible is an ancient document, every person in every situation, in every society that's ever existed can find in this book things that endure forever. It never needs to be edited, never has to be updated, is never out of date or obsolete. It speaks to us as pointedly and directly as it ever has to anyone in any century since it was written. Now, you might think, how can that possibly be? That just sounds so foreign, perhaps, to what you have been accustomed to believe about the Bible. There's a guy named John Frame who's written about this, and he makes, I think, some helpful points just to kind of help us to see that, yeah, I guess it is possible that an ancient document can be relevant to us today. Um, First of all, you know, some of these things are kind of common sense, but 
the first point he makes has to do with humanity. He just says, you know, all cultures are made up of human beings. <laughs> and human beings are basically the same from century to century. People have basically the same longings, the same fears, the same hopes, the same joys, the same concerns, the same challenges. We're all wanting to be happy. We're all looking to our family for support. We're all wanting to find a place in the world. We all want to have meaning in our lives. We all want to know what's going to happen after we die. These are the questions that humanity has been asking for all of human civilization. And so there's the commonality of humanity from culture to culture, which makes it very easy to understand how an ancient culture can be relevant to us today. But then Frame goes on to say it's even more the case when you consider the church. In the church, you have Christians who have been interpreting the Bible, reading the Bible, preserving it, passing it on from generation to generation down through the ages so that we today as Christians in 2016 can benefit from a multitude of centuries before us of Christians who have been working hard at understanding, interpreting, and knowing the Bible so that, so that we can understand it better. There's never been a time in history when the opportunity to understand the Bible, as ancient as it is, is as good as it is today. It says this, we are not faced with a huge, empty, cultural gap between us today and the Bible written many centuries ago. That gap is filled with our own brothers and sisters in the Lord who have built bridges from the original composition of the Bible down to our own day. With their help, we get back to the original cultural settings by small steps. Third thing that Frame says is the Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Spirit that God has given expressly for the purpose of helping us understand the Bible. Times we read the Bible and those who are so critical of the Bible seem to completely forget the supernatural element involved in understanding it, and that is the Holy Spirit, which illumines our minds, understand a document even written centuries ago. So um, here's 1 Corinthians 2. It says, who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Spirit of God understands God's thoughts, and then the Spirit of God helps us to understand His thoughts as we read the Scriptures. Jesus says a very similar thing, John 16, speaking to His disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, though, He will guide you into all truth. Spirit's going to help you understand friends, the Bible is old. That's true. But the fact that it is old is no excuse for you not to read it and study it. And if you are feeling hopeless today, and you're feeling discouraged today, and you're struggling with doubts today, and you're overwhelmed with uncertainty about who God is and what He's like and how you can know what is truth, I just want to tell you, friends, an unread Bible cannot give you hope. A Bible on the shelf or in the drawer or buried under a stack of stuff on your desk cannot help you. The only thing that can help you is a Bible on your lap with your eyes open, 
reading the words that God has put there. So the Bible is entirely relevant. Second thing, the Bible is entirely practical. The Bible is entirely practical. There's three things that we see here about what the Bible does for us, practically speaking. First of all, it gives us hope. Look at the end of verse 4. It was written in former days, it was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through endurance. What's endurance? Well, that's just simply when we don't give up. We, we just, we, we keep going. We, we decide that we're going to keep praying for our neighbor who's unsaved. We decide we're going to keep working on this troubled marriage. We decide we're going to continue to serve in the nursery or in whatever ministry that seems to be really going nowhere. There's endurance. Well, where does that endurance come from? It comes from encouragement, it says. Promises from God, examples in the scriptures of God's faithfulness and goodness. And that encouragement comes very clearly through the scriptures, says there in verse 4, the result being that we would come away with hope. If you're struggling with hope, if you don't have hope in this life, what Paul is saying here is that the source for you to find hope is the scriptures. It's the Bible. I, I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who tell me that their spiritual life is all dried up and they have no excitement about their faith and, and they just have no passion anymore for Jesus. And so I ask them, well, how much are you in the Bible? And they say, yeah, well, I've kind of let that slide lately. Friends, it doesn't surprise me at all if you're drying up spiritually, you're not reading your Bible. I mean, you can expect it. You can expect to be hopeless and discouraged and depressed in this life if you're not reading the document that God has given us to give us hope. It's the Scriptures. Now, again, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is something we kind of tend to neglect, I think, sometimes, but when you think of the resources that are there for us in the Old Testament. How about uh, the power of God and the way He delivered Israel from Egypt, Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, everything that God did to show His remarkable power and the way God held up the walls of that sea just long enough for His people to get through and brings them down upon the pursuing Egyptians. What amazing power our God has. How about the sovereignty of God? When you look at the story of Joseph and his brothers, the brothers selling him into slavery and they're separated for years and then God in his sovereign providence brings them back together and reconciles them in his sovereign grace. How about God's presence? We read the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, three men, but someone looks in and sees four men down there because there was God with these three men, giving them comfort, giving them strength to literally walk through the fire. How about the grace of God? The story we read in 2 Samuel 9, I think, of Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, an enemy of David. And yet David in his grace says, oh, who can I show mercy to? And he seeks out Mephibosheth, the one that you would expect a king to want to eliminate. But he seeks him out to give him a place at his table so that he can eat with the king. These are the kinds of stories you read over and over in the scriptures. How can you read those stories and not have hope? J.C. Ryle said, happy is the man who possesses a Bible, but happier still is the man who reads it. <laughs> because that's where we find hope. Well, the Bible also fosters unity. 
It fosters unity. If we look from verse 4 into verse 5. Verse 4, Paul's talking about this endurance and this encouragement. And then in verse 5, he says, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement. So there's a connection between verse 5 and verse 4. God speaks through the scriptures, giving endurance and encouragement. In verse 5, we find the God, the author of scripture, giving us endurance and encouragement for a particular purpose to grant you to live in such harmony with one another. What Paul wants to see is the church unified, understanding each other, showing grace to one another. Now remember the context here. If you were here the last two Sundays, we looked at chapter 14 and saw that what Paul was talking about was how Christians should deal with disputable matters, right? Those matters of opinion, secondary matters where we differ, where we have different preferences, where we don't really agree with each other. They're secondary. We're not talking about central issues of the faith, but we have a lot of differences of opinion. That's all what chapter 14 is about. And that's what's informing the beginning of chapter 15. And so what Paul is saying is, what I want you to do is live in harmony even though you disagree with each other. If you look at the end of verse 7, you, you see Paul continues this theme. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here is a test. If you want to know if you really get the gospel, if it's really taken hold in your heart, if you really understand it, then you will be gracious and welcoming and open to people you disagree with. It's a true test of whether you really get the gospel. If you're the kind of person who just can't stand to be around anybody who disagrees with you on any issue, there's some aspect of the gospel that hasn't taken hold in your heart yet. We're a congregation of people of a number of different viewpoints, and that's a healthy and good thing. But just as Christ welcomed us, when we had a lot of different viewpoints than Jesus himself, so is he calling on us to welcome one another. And the last thing that we see here as a practical benefit of the scriptures is that it promotes worship. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice, you may, is written in the plural there, but then he talks about with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In what context do you find plurality of people coming together with one voice? What we're doing right now. What we've been doing since 10.30 a.m. in this place. Gathering together, lifting up one voice, even though some of us are conservative and some of us are liberal politically. Even though some of us like to have a glass of wine, and others of us would never have a glass of wine. Even though some of us like to eat meat, and others of us would never eat meat. Some of us like the Colts, and some of us like the Patriots. <laughs> Even though some of us are Beatles fans, and some of us are Stones fans. Come together in this place, and we lift up our voice in unity to declare what we all have in common, and that is that Jesus Christ is King and Lord and Savior of sinners. That all in common. And that's what Paul is talking about here, and that's what the Scriptures promote among God's people. The Bible is entirely practical.
and certainly much more to be said about the practicality of God's word as we look at other portions of scripture. The last thing we see is that the Bible is entirely about Jesus. There's a writer named Edmund Clowney who says, it is possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. See what he's saying? Possible to know a lot about the Bible, yet not know what the Bible is about. What is the Bible? It's an interesting question. I would love to hear your answer to that. What is the Bible? What is the Bible primarily written to do or to accomplish? Is it, is it a rule book? Is it a manual for successful living? It gives you the Bible. You follow what it says. Things will go well. What the Bible is primarily? There's nothing that discourages me more than when I have to assemble something like a broadcast spreader in my garage and I get out those instruction manuals, open it up and it's just full of all these diagrams and all of these directions and they're giving you all these things you got to do and if you don't do it right, this thing is going to mess up. Just think of the Bible that way. It's like an instruction manual. All these details you got to do and if you don't do it all right, it's going to be a mess. I would suggest to you that the Bible is nearly as much like an instruction manual as it is like a love letter. It's more like a love letter. Because what the Bible is telling us is not everything that you should do to save yourself. It's telling us what God did in Jesus to save you. That's the main point. The Bible has Jesus as the center point. Jesus is the star of the show. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the main point. And so it's possible to know Bible stories and yet miss the Bible story, which is what God has done in Christ for us and our salvation. Now, we see this in the first few verses here of 15. Paul's talking here about the strong and the weak. So again, he's continuing with this issue of disputable matters that we saw in chapter 14. I'm not going to explain the difference between the strong and the weak. I've done that the last two weeks. Uh, you can hear those sermons if you're interested. But what Paul says here is the strong have an obligation to the weak. Those in a position of strength in the church are not to abuse the weak or take advantage of the weak. Instead, what the strong are to do is to please their neighbor, to build their neighbor up. The strong should be seeking not to lord over the weak, their power or authority, but to use it to serve and to build them up. And then Paul says, well, why is this? And we see that in verse 3. Here's his support for that claim. It's because Christ did not please himself. Christ didn't take his strength, his divinity, and use it as a way to crush the weak. Christ took his authority and his power to bless the weak and build up the weak. And then Paul's support in verse 3 is to quote something from the Old Testament. So you see at the end of verse 3, he quotes this verse, which comes from Psalm 69.9. Reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what it says in Psalm 69.9. What Paul is saying is that was actually written about Christ. So what the psalmist had in mind there was um, the, the way a person takes reproach or criticism or abuse upon himself when it was actually intended for God. That those who hate God would take their hatred for God out on a believer. That's what the psalmist has in mind. And of course, 
there's no better picture of that than Jesus himself, right? I mean, Jesus took the ultimate reproach upon himself when he went to the cross. But, but here's what I want you to see here. Paul seems to be saying is that Psalm 69 was about Jesus. You wouldn't think that, would you, reading Psalm 69? Psalm 69 never says the word Jesus. But what Paul is saying here is that it is about Jesus. See, we allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament so we can understand how to interpret the whole Bible. See, over and over again, as we read the New Testament, is that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Here's Luke 24, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples after his resurrection. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. He showed the disciples how the Old Testament talked about him. That's what that means. Another example, John 5, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, it's the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament wasn't written at this time. They, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. The Old Testament's about Jesus. That can entirely open up a whole new vista of understanding and excitement for you when you read the Bible, if when you read the Bible, you look for Jesus in it. How do we do that? Well, I mean, that's a lifelong task right there. But here's some examples. You read the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. You read about Adam being tempted by the devil. Adam being told to obey God. What does Adam do? He fails. We see about Jesus, the second Adam, also tempted by the devil. He succeeds. Adam fails the test. Jesus passes the test. Adam should make you think of Jesus. How about Moses? Moses is leading his people through the wilderness. And what does Moses do? Over and over again, he intercedes to God on behalf of the people who are disobedient and constantly rejecting God. And Moses is calling on God to bless them. For as long as he lived, a short period of time on this earth, what does Jesus do? It says in Hebrews that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. He's interceding for us at this very moment. I mean, read the story of Jonah. Jonah gets thrown into the water and he gets swallowed up in the belly of a fish for three days. Jonah enclosed in the tomb of a fish for three days. What does that make you think of? Our Lord and Savior Jesus in a tomb, in a literal tomb for three days. Jonah came out of that fish alive and Jesus came out of the tomb alive as well. How about the story of Cain and Abel? Back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his innocent brother. And it says in the text that Abel's blood cried out to God. Innocent sufferer whose blood cried out to God. What does that make you think of? Innocent Savior whose blood cries out to God for your pardon, your forgiveness, for washing away of all your sins. Even the story of Cain and Abel is about Jesus. Friends, an unread Bible won't give you hope. How are you doing your Bible reading? There's lots of opportunities here for you to learn about the Bible. You've been hearing about some of them this morning. You've heard about uh, men's Bible study, the women's Bible study coming up. Uh, we've got Sunday school here every Sunday morning, 9 a.m. for children, for junior high, senior high, for adults. It's a great way to learn about the Bible. 
And in your own Bible reading, I just want to leave you with this very simple challenge. It's just kind of a practical to do, something I'm trying to do myself in my own Bible reading because I know that if you read the Bible at any length, you know what it's like. You read it and then you go off and you forget what you just read. (laughs) Happens all the time. Uh, Here's what I'm trying to do. I just have a post-it note right next to my Bible as I'm reading through the passages. I just look for the, the one verse that just strikes me most, that just moves my heart for whatever reason. Write down that verse and put it in my pocket. Take it with me. Take it with me all day long. I reach in to get my keys and I feel it in my pocket. Get it out, read it again, again. A little later, I go to the store, I get some change out. Oh, I feel that thing in my pocket, get it out. It reminds me of what I read. Good way to take the word with you. And I would encourage you to do it. You want to be encouraged if you want to endure and if you want to have hope. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. God, um, praise you that you have chosen to spoke to us. You have chosen not to leave us in darkness. You've chosen to give us hope. And God, we pray, make us a people passionate for your word. Make us a people who go to your word constantly, who drink from the depths of its riches and wisdom. Make us people of the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.